In 2003, I went to Pakistan on a missions trip. And to get to the area where we were going to be doing ministry, we had to go through Islamabad. And while we were in uh, Islamabad, I saw some pretty incredible things. Um, I've had the, the privilege to do ministry in tons of different settings around the world. Okay, I've been to Mexico, Honduras, Sudan, Bolivia, the Dominican Republic, and Costa Rica, in addition to Pakistan. And I have seen some really gut-wrenching poverty in some of these places. I mean, the kind of thing that um, would really shock you. Poverty that makes poor people in America really look like kings and queens by comparison. Okay? And I'll never forget our ministry partner in Pakistan this moment when on the way to a church service that we were going to, he took us to one of the slums in Islamabad. And I've never seen anything like it. Nothing to compare to this. These were eight-foot by eight-foot homes on the biggest scale. I mean, that was the largest family, six, eight, ten people. Um, they were literally built in the middle of a giant mud pit. I mean, uh, like some of the rains recently that we had here in Phoenix, washed out place. I mean, this is where people were building their homes. They were made out of the mud from the ground, some scrap metal, maybe a pallet or two, some cloth. And if they were lucky, they had a couple blocks, some bricks to build with. And for hundreds of yards in every direction, you could see homes like this just smashed together in this disgusting heap of humanity. And it was almost hard to comprehend as I was looking at it. You know, human refuse flowed through the streets. There's no sewage. Little children with just a pair of pants on because they didn't have a full outfit of clothes would be running through those same streets barefoot, playing together. Um, Actually surprisingly joyful considering the wretched poverty that they lived in. And I didn't get a chance to go into any of those homes, which I think I I was actually fortunate that I wasn't given that opportunity because I think it would have just been too much for me to handle. But I didn't need to, because just looking at the scene was heartbreaking enough. And believe it or not, after we passed the slums and our ministry partner showed us the slums, we went to a church service in the home of a poor person. Okay, So all of that to say that this level of poverty in the slums in Islamabad is so beyond classification that they don't even fit into the category of poor. We did church in a poor person's house by comparison, okay? And in these slums, there's no hope. There's no chance for change. There's no Mark Zuckerberg with his great idea waiting to be tomorrow's millionaire or billionaire. There's no literacy. There's no education. There's no different trajectory. There's no change in career breakthrough for mom or dad that will open the doors of opportunity for successive generations. There are no brilliant ideas or political movements to bring hope that will change the disparity of the poverty. There's just thousands of families who for generation after generation after generation will be desperately poor without hope of ever finding any other outcome for their life or the lives of their children, okay? These people are poor. They are stuck. They are hopeless. They are helpless. And when I use this kind of imagery, we still don't even begin to comprehend And it's too bad that while I was there, I didn't speak Urdu, which is the language they speak in Pakistan, and that I didn't think to share with them this passage from Isaiah 61 that we're going to look at, because I can't can't help but wonder if I had had the opportunity to do that, to take my Bible and speak their language and go into these slums and share this passage. I wonder what they would have thought. 
I wonder how they would have responded. Maybe they would have heard some words of hope that we're going to look at from these pages, or maybe these people were already so far gone that they wouldn't have even been able to comprehend the ideas that we're going to look at in God's word today. But looking back on the experience now, I truly wish that I could have had an opportunity to just share some of the words of Scripture with them and hear their thoughts. I want to share these words with you, so why don't you guys turn with me to Isaiah 61. And uh, I'll make mention, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give one to you. Let that be our gift to you. You can go to the back table, what we call the bookstore after the service, and we will give you one gladly. And if you're there, you can read with me Isaiah 61. If not, just listen along. And I'm just going to read the first three verses. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness." the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Okay, these words were not initially written for the people in the slums in Islamabad, Pakistan, of course. They were written for the people of Israel as they were in captivity in Babylon. And Isaiah was a prophet of God sent to try and tell the people of Israel uh, about God's intention for their lives, to get them straightened out. And he proclaimed to them first a message of warning and disaster because God was angry with them for the idolatry and disobedience that they had been engaging in. But Isaiah's message was also peppered with hope. It wasn't just despair, it was peppered with hope. And it ended in this beautifully high crescendo. And he told Israel that although God was angry, when the time of his wrath had come to its completion, he would again restore Israel and bring hope to God's people. And Isaiah was the messenger appointed by God to proclaim to Israel comfort in the midst of their mourning, gladness to their heavy hearts, freedom from their chains of slavery and oppression, beauty for ashes and praise to lift up a faint spirit. And it was God's plan for his people that he would grab them out of their poverty and plant them in his righteousness so that he might be glorified as their redeemer and savior and hero. And Isaiah was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor when God would pour out his blessing on his people once again. Now, Isaiah's words in this prophecy in chapter 61 have a twofold meaning. Okay. First, there's a physical reality to this prophecy. Uh, after the fall of Babylon to the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 537 BC, the Jews began to return from captivity. Israel was set free from captivity in Babylon. They shed the bonds of their captors and they became joyfully free to return back to the promised land. And their broken hearts were once again restored as they traveled home after 60 years in essentially prison, 60 years of exile and mourning for their homeland. 
And once home, they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and they were reunited with the remnant of Israel that had been left there who were still mourning for Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. And so there was a physical reality to this prophecy that we can say was fulfilled around 537 BC. But much more significant than just the physical reality, to us especially, was the spiritual fulfillment of this prophecy. Because the primary meaning behind this prophecy is not actually physical, it's spiritual. And the key to our understanding it as spiritual is found in verse 3. Maybe you noticed this when it says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And if this prophecy primarily and only referred to Israel's physical restoration, the freedom of the captives from Babylon, the restoration of the financial fortunes of Israel that had been hauled off into captivity, the binding of the brokenhearted coming home to Jerusalem, then there should be zero expectation that this reality would lead these people to be called oaks of righteousness. Poverty and captivity and even mourning, I would say to some extent, these are physical realities. They come about because of physical circumstances affecting our lives. They manifest themselves in physical ways. But the righteousness that concerns God in this prophecy is a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual thing. And so what we see here is that God is assessing the spiritual reality of his people in this prophecy, not just the physical reality. What he says is that they are in spiritual poverty. They are desperately in need of some good news. They're brokenhearted, quite literally. The very center of their being, their hearts, are broken and incapable of functioning properly the way that he intended. They are captives, slaves to sin and unrighteousness. They are bound and in prison, unable to free themselves from the darkness that is in their hearts and their souls that are dead to sin. They are in mourning for the closeness they once had with God, which has been taken from them, destroyed. And as a result, they're now lonely and isolated, far from God and spiritually cold. These are spiritual realities. And into this spiritual reality then, God sends his messenger, Isaiah, to speak these words of hope and comfort. For all to whom the Lord has chosen to pour out his favor, God has good news. Riches and healing and freedom and comfort, beauty and gladness and praise All of these lovely things instead of their spiritual poverty. Okay, now the fact is that the physical reality of this prophecy has really nothing to do with us or very little to do with us. The physical side was spoken for Israel that they might have hope that God would free them from captivity in Babylon. It was given to them so that they might have hope in the end of their physical suffering. But the spiritual aspect of this prophecy speaks directly to us. It is for us. But it requires, in order to understand it, some serious honesty, some serious soul-searching. This is America. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is the place where individualistic people like you and me pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. How many times have you heard that phrase? 
It's a nation founded on principles of self-sufficiency and hard work and personal liberty. We are people who are rich and free and proud and happy. And we have made ourselves, we have made ourselves into the greatness we are. And we stand upon the achievements that we've won with our own blood, sweat, and tears. That's America. That's what defines this nation. And you know what? These are all truly great things, really. Which is why I would say that America is the greatest nation that has ever been on planet Earth. Self-sufficiency and rugged individualism and hard work, these are all really great things. Until, until they bleed over into the spiritual realm. And this is where I pray that God obliterates the hardness of your heart to show you the bankrupt state of your human condition before him. Because we are poor. We stand before God clothed in filthy rags like disgusting homeless people. The inside of our hearts resembles the slums of Islamabad, dirty and hopeless, despairing and dismal. Our hearts are desperately sick and we are penniless. If salvation could be said to cost our weight in gold, we are so utterly poor that we can't even scrounge up a pebble's worth of coal to buy ourselves back. We don't even have the right currency in God's kingdom to try and negotiate with him. We are poor in spirit and destitute, starving and naked, emaciated and impoverished before the richness of the glory of our God. And we're brokenhearted. We're brokenhearted, aren't we? This God who loves us, we have abandoned him to drown ourselves in small and fleeting pleasures instead. We've traded the glory of the Lord for human castles made of ice that melt before the all-consuming fire of God. And so we wander our way through this life, our brokenheartedness, watching empty sitcoms and empty bottles and empty careers, chasing empty vanity. And at the end of each of these things that we thought would bring us satisfaction and happiness, we're left with nothing but our sad, broken hearts. Because deep down, all we want, truly, is the beauty of God who made us. To see the beauty of our God. But we're bound in the prison of our sin. We're captives to desires that never satisfy us. And so we take another approach. We try to be good and we go to church and we clean up our act. Clean up our act. And we climb and we climb and we climb the ladder of religion hoping that might help. Maybe this one will do it. Maybe this will yield the satisfaction that I'm looking for. Only to find that the cell of our sin is always deeper than our religious achievements. And religion does nothing to satisfy our broken hearts. And so we fall down again into the prison of our depravity and we mourn with sorrow and tears. And we wrestle with depression because we're not good enough. We ruin our marriages looking for some other fleeting sense of happiness that we never find. We ruin our children while serving our own selfish ambitions to achieve and be greater and be recognized. We build our identities on anything that just for one moment looks stable enough to hold the ashes of our life. But in the end, that too falls apart and we're left once again just staring the poverty of our souls blank in the face. And so our spirit is faint, like it says in Isaiah 61, and our hearts are lonely. 
And the image that stares back at us from the mirror is just a haunting apparition of terror and isolation. Oh, but Grady, you might say, you're, you're, you're being far too dramatic. It's not that bad. You know, and to some extent, you might be right because we never allow ourselves to think about these truths because they're too hard and they're too painful. And it's much easier to just keep up the act to continue to fool ourselves and feel a little bit better. So instead, instead of be honest and think about it and look at it, we dress up the slum of our heart in wallpaper so we don't have to see it. Little successes, little vacations, little trinkets, little Facebook likes, clever thoughts and educational degrees, milestones, career kudos, and vague memories of happiness, TV shows and hobbies, all kinds of human knickknacks to distract us from just how bankrupt our souls really are. Anything, anything that we can find to take our minds off of the fact that we are poor and we are broken and we are drowning desperately in our sin. Just for one moment, take my mind off of it. Close your eyes for just one second. Because maybe you're still not convinced. Just close your eyes for a second and bow your head. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. (laughs) Just close your eyes and bow your head. And I want you to just sit for a second and try and peel back the layers of temporary pleasures that you've pasted over your broken heart. And remove the pretenses and just look at your life for one second and just sit quietly and stare at what you find in the chasm of your soul. Maybe it's sadness, maybe it's pain, maybe it's loneliness. I don't know what it is, but hopefully, you can go ahead and open your eyes. Hopefully, in the midst of all of our spiritual poverty, hopefully at some point we stumble onto the words of God. And we find the hope of God like we see it here in this prophecy in Isaiah. The precious words of Scripture, the Bible. And thank God that he brought you to church today. Not so that you could soak in your own poverty, that's not my end goal, but so that you could find peace in his grace. Because these words in Isaiah 61, these words are for you. And they're for me. They're they're not another placebo. You know what a placebo is? A drug that supposedly helps but doesn't. This is not a placebo. These are not false hope. These words are not a temporary painkiller. They're not just another wallpaper to stick over our broken psyche. And they're not meaningless religion. These are the true words of God spoken to comfort his people with hope that the year of the Lord's favor has come to the poor and the prisoners and the brokenhearted and the mourners. To you and to me. A message of hope and gladness and good news for the spiritually dead. Good news for those in exile under sin given to us to bring those beautiful things up out of the ashes. Okay, but how do I know? How do I know that these words are for you and for me? How do we know that these words of hope apply to us? How can we be certain that this good news is real and that it's available for us to grab hold of? 
Well, the answer is because Jesus tells us himself. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to look at a couple verses in Luke chapter 4 here. I'm going to read it starting in verse 16 and we'll read to 21. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, oops, sorry, wrong passage. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I wish I could preach like that. I mean, in this moment, Jesus does something truly incredible with all eyes in the room transfixed on him. He gives the shortest and most powerful Sunday morning sermon that has ever been preached. He claims that he is the year of the Lord's favor that Isaiah was referring to. He claims that through him, the spiritually poor become wealthy beyond compare. He claims that in him the good news has come. He claims that through him the captives and those who are bound find a doorway to freedom. He claims that through him the blind will see and the oppressed will have peace and liberty. Jesus does the unthinkable in these words in Luke. He takes the prophecy of Isaiah and he says that all of the promises made to the brokenhearted, the mourners, the poor, And the prisoners, all of those promises have been fulfilled in him. He is the hope and the righteousness and the gladness and the liberty and the good news. He himself is. He is the favor of God poured out on the spiritual slums of humanity. The hope for the slums of our hearts. And how can this be? How can this be? How can Jesus make such a ridiculous claim? How How can he dare say that all of our sadness, our loneliness, our pain, our suffering, our bondage, our brokenness, our blindness, our poverty, our sin, all of that, how can Jesus say that it all comes to an end in him? And how can he claim that he will take our poor and broken hearts and bind them up so that we can be whole and free? And you know what the answer is, don't you? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus traded places with you and he stood before God clothed in all the filthy rags of your spiritual poverty. And he gave you the royal robes of his righteousness and placed you at the seat of honor before God the Father. He took the stench of your life in the slums and he gave you the sweet fragrance of his holiness. He let his heart be broken with the shame of your sins so that you could stand before his father with the honor of his perfection. And he removed the chains of your bankrupt soul and set you free to run through the streets of the kingdom of God while he entered into the captivity of your prison. 
And he gave you the bliss of his eternal joy in the presence of God while he mourned and died in isolation upon the cross. And do you know what you are because of what Jesus has done? You are an immovable oak of righteousness growing in the garden of God's favor because of what Jesus has made you. And for the glory of God the Father, Jesus has planted you firm and secure in his own righteousness so that you may be steadfast and rich in the love of God. So that your broken heart may be joyful and glad. So that you can know the freedom of the kingdom of God. This is not some vague religious speculation. These are the words of God himself prophesied by Isaiah and confirmed in the mouth of Jesus. So let me close with one thought for you. In, in our modern humanistic culture, it's very politically incorrect to talk like this. You know, outside of these four walls, these kinds of ideas and language, they end up getting you in big trouble. Post this on Facebook and see what happens. Because what I'm telling you is, I'm telling you that your soul is a slum and God lives in unapproachable glory. And you're way down here and he is so far up there that you can never reach or obtain him. And modern culture, what it's trying to do for all of its work, what it's trying to do so desperately is to close that gap by redefining the language, right? Close the gap with postmodern philosophy, designer religions, humanistic optimism, movements of social justice and pop psychology. You've seen them. They're, they're the books that line the bookshelves at Fry's grocery store. And the goal is to make you believe that you're okay and that God's not that far away from you. And that while there may be a slum in your soul, oh, to some degree... It's definitely getting better. And so keep up the good work. You're almost there. But what I want you to hear is that exactly the opposite is true. By your own efforts, by my own efforts, we're not getting better. And the solution to your brokenness is not to try and climb as high as you can on the ladder of self-righteousness and then at that point cry out to Jesus, Lord, help me. Because Jesus will not be a partner in your salvation. He's not a partner. Jesus will not meet you halfway. Jesus will not be satisfied to merely finish the job that you began. Isaiah 42.8 tells us that God refuses to share his glory with anyone. And the only way that you can meet Jesus, and this is wonderful news, the only way that you can meet Jesus is to acknowledge that you are poor and that you are a prisoner that you are blinded and oppressed by your sin, to admit before him that you are desperate. Notice that in Isaiah 61, there's no mention of people who are rich and whole and happy and free. Because in truth, God has no message for people who think that they've already saved themselves. There's no message for people who think that they are self-sufficiently holy before God. The only way that you can meet Jesus is to come before him poor and broken. Exactly the way that you are. And even after you meet Jesus, you're still poor, you're still broken in this life. But he gives you all of the riches that you need. 
for each and every day through Christ. And there's only two responses to our passage of Scripture from Isaiah and Luke. And the first is to say, I don't need that. You may be here this morning and hear this passage and you're like, thank God I'm not poor and broken and a prisoner. I don't need that garbage. And you can continue to deceive yourself into thinking that you've got the situation under control. And I don't know what to tell you truly. I mean, apart from these words, I don't know what to tell you except to say that when you're done trying and you're totally exhausted from living in the slum of your life, then come to Jesus because he will still be there with his arms open to love you and lift you up out of your poverty. Just remember that. And good luck to you. Jesus will be ready for you when you're done trying to do it on your own, when the world finally breaks you and sin leaves you lonely and desperate and hurting. He'll be ready for you, so come. And the other response is to say, and I hope you say this, I need this. Jesus, I need this. This is me. I am poor and I am captive and I need a savior. And we admit that once, one time for the forgiveness of sins. And that makes us Christians or believers or born again or Jesus followers, whatever you want to say. We admit it one time for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We fall for the very first time at the foot of the cross and acknowledge that we need Jesus. And in that moment, God gives us eternal life, the Holy Spirit. We are born again. We come into his kingdom. But being a follower of Jesus means that every day we have to come back to him for a fresh dose of freedom, for a fresh dose of his richness, for a fresh dose of gladness and healing. And he is the spring and the source for all of God's favor that's poured out on the Christian. And so don't neglect him whom you love. Don't lose sight of Jesus. If I could give you one application or one thought to stay home, to take home, it would just be this. Stay poor and desperate so that you always need him. Stay poor and desperate. Stay empty so that he can fill you up to the very last drop. Let me pray. God, we pray that we would be people who are empty, not so that we stay empty, but empty of ourselves so that we can be more full with your spirit. God, would you raise us up? Would you remind us to come to you every single day for more peace and more hope and more joy and more love and more and more grace? God, would we not walk in pride thinking that we've been forgiven once and that's it and we need nothing else? God, would we depend on you constantly and always to be sufficient? Would you help us walk hand in hand with you day by day? And God, if there are people in this room who, who think that they can do it on their own, God, would you just break them down this morning, we pray? And would they come to you empty and desperate just like the rest of us, and find hope, find the year of the Lord's favor, find love and grace and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.